0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show,
1: and this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Peter, it's great to have you here.
0: It is good to be at the event. Uh, Tyler, we're coming from the 2022 National Ocean Exploration Forum here at the University of Texas in our hometown, Tyler. So it's great to have the world's leading ocean and coastal researchers here gathered in Austin, Texas. And uh, we're going to get a chance to learn more about this meeting from the from the big cheese, the CEO and the president of the Consortium
1: for Ocean Leadership, Alan Leonardi. We are Peter. It's going to be a really great little conversation, ladies and gentlemen. You'll know that yesterday we kicked it off with uh, some of Alan's staff and learned about what we will, what's happening here at the forum, and a little bit about the organization. But today we're going to dive in a little bit deeper.
0: We are indeed, and in, uh, uh, Dr. Leonardi, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. We appreciate you taking time out of this very busy event to talk to our listeners around the world.
2: It's great to be here. Really really appreciate the opportunity to kind of share some of the thoughts with the, uh, the world out there about what we're trying to do.
0: Well, the Consortium for Ocean Leadership is the organization that is putting on this event in cooperation with many other leading ocean research institutions. Uh, Give us a little bit of an overview of the Consortium for Ocean Leadership, if you would. Sure. Happy to do that.
2: Before I before I do that, I'd like to jump in and say that we're really putting this on in partnership with the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Texas, uh, Austin Jackson School of Geosciences. It's truly a partnership and it's been a great labor of love uh, getting here, particularly given the pandemic. Um, about the consortium, we are a not-for-profit organization that represents uh, close to 100 of the leading U.S. organizations in ocean science, ocean technology, ocean research, ocean education. Uh, the, the majority of those are from the academic community, but we also have membership from uh, philanthropy, industry, zoos and aquaria, and associations as well. And really our goal is to try to do our best to position the ocean science community for success. And you really can see that in a a number of different ways. One, we bring the community together around important topics and important conversations such as ocean exploration, ocean observing, ocean modeling, eDNA, those types of things. Um, We work with the agencies to make sure that they understand what the science community thinks is important and where they need to be going. We work with the the Congress to make sure that they understand where the science needs to go, what resources might need to be had, and how that might benefit humanity and society as a whole. Uh, And ultimately, our, our job and our goal here is just to help the community as a whole.
0: That is an amazing organization and a great event. Some of the leading ocean researchers in the world are here, gathered for a couple of days to think about how to go forward, what's important in the strategy in terms of ocean science and exploration over the next decade, Why is it important? Why now does this plan need to be put together? Why do we need to understand the strategy for the next 10 years in ocean science?
2: Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, Let me kind of go back in time a little bit to 2013 when the first forum on ocean exploration was held uh, at the at the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach. Um, That event was the first time the community really got together to try to envision what ocean exploration might look like in the future and their goal was what should a national program on ocean exploration look like in 2020? So the community got together, they identified some ideas, they put them on paper, this, this is what we need to be focusing on. And that program needs to exist in 2020. And, and I'm, and I'm happy to say that the program largely got to where it needed to go and where they envisioned. But in that intervening period of time, that seven to eight years, uh, there was a lot of change in the landscape of ocean science and technology and in ocean exploration in particular. When the first conversations about standing up an ocean exploration program in the US government uh, came into place in the, in the late 1990s and ultimately a program showed up in the early 2000s, there was no philanthropic operators operating in this space wow. at all. None. Today, there are somewhere on the order of uh, 15 of them worldwide. Uh, so, this is a community that has grown, in, in particular in the last uh, 10 to 12 years um technology of course we know continues to change at a rapid pace right i mean so the technologies that we've been using to explore the ocean for the last 25 years are now way more sensitive way more capable uh, of doing things that we couldn't do before and then the other part about this is that there's there's a lot of industry involvement and there's a lot of investment from R&D perspective in industry Um, In this space as well, for for ocean science purposes, for ocean economy purposes, what what folks probably don't realize is that industry right now outspends the U.S. government and R&D in the United States at a factor of about 10 to 1. Wow. Okay. Versus 50 years ago uh, or so, 60 years ago, when we were at an all-time high for R&D funding from the U.S. government. The government was the game in town for funding basic science, basic uh, research and development. Now, of course, like I said, industry outstrips government by about a factor of 10 to 1 across all R&D, not just ocean science, be clear. Uh, And philanthropic uh, investment is also getting to be on par with government investment as well. So the landscape of how ocean science gets done and who is practicing ocean science has changed dramatically. So it's a good time to kind of get the community back together, a community that has grown and expanded in the last 10 years to include not just the government folks, not just academic folks, but to include the philanthropic organizations, to include the private sector, to include the startup community, uh, to get them together to really think about what ocean exploration should look like in, in 10 years or so. And and I'd be remiss if I didn't add to that, you know, the very important conversation that's been going on nationally and globally about the need to diversify the workforce in ocean sciences and ocean technology. And so that's been a key element of what's been discussed here over the last couple of days.
1: It really has, and it's, uh, it's noteworthy. Uh, you know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you might recognize Alan Leonardi's name from uh, Tim Gallaudet's show, the American Blue Economy podcast on our network. And I believe you were on the ocean exploration panel uh and uh so there's a connection between ocean exploration and the blue economy and i'll tell you the energy here peter is that we are at the precipice of something really major and you were touching on it i mean we've been talking about sensors basically being deployed throughout the ocean mapping the sea i mean this is this is an incredibly exciting economic time but i and you, you got, you were starting to do it. But would you characterize kind of the state of the union of ocean exploration as it exists today, and you know, in this moment and looking forward?
2: Yeah, sure. I, I would say that you know, twenty five or so years ago, when this when this program was stood up, or almost twenty five years ago, um, it was really one government program. And and by the way, this is it's the only government program globally that's focused on systematically exploring the ocean. Uh, But it was one small program, one small office doing things with some keynote explorers, for example, Bob Ballard, folks like that, Sylvia Earle. But today it really is a broadened community, right? And so what we're trying to do from, from that perspective is every time we have one of these forums, we try to bring together not only the leading practitioners have been in the ocean exploration community for a long time, but those who are emerging as well. And then even those that are not part of the ocean exploration world at all, or even maybe even the ocean science world, because you want to get a diversity of opinion, a diversity of perspective. People are going to bring brand new ideas. Maybe they're working on some medical device and you can turn around and say, oh, wait a second, I could apply the use of that technology in the ocean to solve some new problems there. Um, So that's part of our goal here is to bring that community together. And so if you walk the floor, you talk to the people in in the hallways, you'll see people from certainly the usual cast from academia, industry, philanthropy, uh, business, but you also seen more social science folks that are focused on the social science aspects of things, business people, people who are really representing people who want to figure out how to take advantage of what is expected to be a doubling of the global maritime economy in the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, so we're going to see great growth potential there. Um, it's already happening to some degree has been slowed by the pandemic. And so you, you have people here that are also looking for those opportunities. How can how can the business people who maybe are in the business of building technologies and selling technologies or selling data as it's as it's begin beginning to come to be, how can they contribute to this enterprise of in the United States, fully mapping the US EEZ, fully exploring it, identifying those things that are really important, characterizing them so that we can understand them, uh, not just from a scientific perspective, but understand which parts are important to preserve and conserve. Which parts uh, are beneficial for us from a human use perspective, right? Obviously, we get a lot of energy from the ocean. There's a big push to expand the amount of energy from Mm -hmm. the ocean from a renewal perspective. We get medicines from the ocean, right? The ocean is the great carbon sequesterer. The oceans provide half of the oxygen we believe on the planet. And quite frankly, the oceans are going to feed the next billion people that are going to come to this planet. So if there's any time to rekindle our connection to the ocean, it's now.
0: Well, it is the moment is now. And uh, in coastal news today, we compile the news of around, around the American shoreline and around the world. A couple of issues have been repeatedly rising to the surface over the last year. And I just want to throw out a couple. Ocean mining is becoming increasingly a focus of attention around the world. The Cook Islands uh, recently in the last month issued the first leases for uh, deep sea mining. The wind power industry is exploding off the American shoreline. The New York Bright lease sale by Boehm. they're here. The Bureau of Offshore Energy Management is here. $4.37 billion lease sale, the largest lease sale in U.S. history for offshore assets. Uh, aquaculture, big discussion at the conference so far. And of course, underlying it all, climate change. Um, talk to us about why ocean exploration is critical to these subject matter uh, issues, and are there other issues of great concern to the consortium? Sure. Uh, Excellent
2: question. And and one that's not trivial to answer, particularly since there's interconnectedness when you think about some of the topics that you just talked about. So so let's look at critical minerals, right? This is a pressing issue. Think about ocean exploration. Think about the state of play with, with what might happen in terms of mining minerals from the deep sea bed, which, by the way, are going to be needed if we want to continue to have the time of lifestyles that we've grown accustomed to, and if we want the, the less developed countries to become more developed and prosperous, they're gonna be needed, right? So we're gonna to have to go to this place. Yet the, the rules of the road about deep sea mining, which are being rewritten these days through uh, international um, groups, they were established in 1975. Yeah, And in 1977, we discovered that there was life at the bottom of the ocean. Incredible. Right. So this is a scenario where without exploration, we would establish mining protocols and regimes and regulatory processes that assumed that the deep ocean was devoid of life. And so that anything we might do in that deep ocean space would have zero impact. And and the reality is, is is it, it will have impact anything we do in the ocean space has an impact. And so we have to, we have to explore and we have to observe and we have to monitor and we have to do science to understand what those impacts are going to be so that we can mitigate them but we also have to explore to understand where the critical minerals are 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 there sensitive biological systems immediately adjacent or within those ecosystems where the critical minerals are that we have to take care of that that's maybe support large marine ecosystems which support fisheries or support recreation and tourism so these are the types we have to think about the same, the same goes to leasing and siting decisions for offshore energy, whether it's traditionally been oil or gas or increasingly it's offshore wind. In order to put those turbines in the right place, you have to understand the underlying environment so that you're not damaging it and you're not harming it and that you're not disturbing what are large scale fisheries that exist in these areas. Um, and then I, I, you know one important point that I, I like to remind people is that every time you put a big turbine on, on land or in the water, those turbines have very large magnets in them. And those magnets require rare earth metals and critical minerals, which are gonna increasingly need to be coming from the bottom of the ocean. So there's a connectedness to those two things Great. that we kind of have to think about, right? And yes, aquaculture is actually going gangbusters. It maybe will be a way to to have a potentially lower carbon footprint, if not carbon sequestering option of feeding people. Um, Kelp diesel, baby, Kelp I'm, diesel. I'm all over it. right? Um, so that that's going to go gangbusters, but we have to understand how to do this properly. And so there's great work going on globally in this area. Uh, NOAA is getting is increasing the funding that they provide my former agency is increasingly funding what they do in this in this area trying to figure out how to do it right. Uh, and, and as the climate is changing and, and fish populations, that may be migrating, this might actually help communities who have fished the same fish species for hundreds of years, change some of their business model to be able to work locally. Yeah. Because if they don't do that, they have to travel farther away to get the same fish that they've been fishing for hundreds of years that that maybe somebody's father, maybe somebody's grandfather, maybe somebody's great grandfather had fished. This is a cultural identity issue. And so there's going to be some opportunities, I think, through some of these these the, the economic side of the maritime industry that's expanding that that might also help in, in ways that that we don't fully understand just yet.
1: Well, Alan, uh, being here at the forum, I've had the honor of participating in some of these breakout groups. And uh, we're in these groups, we're talking about many of these issues, trying to put this blueprint 2032, uh, at least some components together. And uh, one of the things that has just risen to the fore is the importance of uh, inclusion, equity, representation. And for for the reasons that you're saying there, there are historic uses, there's traditional uses and As new industries and new interests come into the blue part of the planet it's clear that uh, we're gonna have to get along I mean this is a public space we're talking about the ocean we're exploring a public space that's really fascinating this isn't someone's private land where they're maybe gonna find oil you know this is this is a public universe could you speak to how how in in this blueprint um, mission that uh, all of these things are gonna get woven together
2: yeah, it's an excellent question. And I'll say that, you know, importantly, this forum, as it's sponsored by the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is really focused primarily on U.S. domestic issues, things that we might be doing in the U.S. EEZ, yet there's a spillover for other areas as well. Right. And and of course, we can lead by example and lead by design so that others can follow suit. So. Um, you know, this is, this is an excellent question, but the other, the other piece of that, and I'm going to go right to the diversity piece, the representational piece, a couple of things um, that are intertwined and in it's, in its complex is one, we're talking about exploring parts of the ocean that have maybe never been explored before, but not because there's not populations there. Because there are populations there. There are native populations. There's indigenous populations. There's tribal populations. They've been there for a really long time. They know these areas. They know them well. They have traditional knowledge. And we can learn from that. But the other piece of it is there's also often a very spiritual connection to the ocean for a lot of the communities. And we have to be sensitive that we should be working with those communities when we wanna explore these oceans. We wanna be respectful, we wanna be inclusive, we want to engage to make sure that we're doing this in a way that is that, that they can honor and they can trust as well. And so that's important. Um, the other piece I'll say on, on, the, on the diversity side is the maritime economy is growing and we're gonna need a workforce and these are gonna be well-paying jobs that need technical, skilled people. And ultimately we want the people who are taking those jobs to be representative of the demographics of this country, which are changing, right? But today, the workforce in ocean science, ocean technology, ocean research, and ocean education is decidedly not diverse. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you, and if you look at the the government side of things alone, which is a little bit easier to get statistics on, there's an important number, a couple of numbers that I'd like to talk about first. 45% 45% of the U.S. federal workforce is or excuse me, 63% of the U.S. federal workforce is over the age of 45, eligible to retire in the next five to 20 years. Wow. Yet the ocean science workforce is not diverse. And we don't have enough of a pipeline of students who have been historically underrepresented in ocean sciences going through to be trained to enter that workforce today. So we need to start those efforts now because we have a once in a generation opportunity. If we can get a pipeline of students going that are gonna be doing ocean-based work, whether it's science, whether it's technology, whether it's ship handling, whether it's container shipping, whether it's the, the cruise lines, we need people who are technically skilled that are getting trained because as that workforce starts to retire, we have an opportunity to immediately flip a switch and dramatically diversify what is largely an old white male workforce mm-hmm. in the United States. So well, th- cool this plan. is this is an important time for us and we, we
0: really have to it's take It's game action. time, it's
1: game time, we gotta do it.
0: It is and how did you do it? I mean obviously I think it's quite right that with a workforce with an average age 45, 63% of the people 45 years old, there's going to be a great turnover. How does the consortium, how does the US government, how does the private sector Uh, act and behave to promote greater diversity inclusion in the workforce over the next decade? Excellent question. Um, Maybe I led you into it a little bit
2: because we're actually trying to do some of this right now, but I can start out with what we can't do. Okay. Right. What we absolutely should not do is write another white paper about what we need to do to diversify the workforce. We need to take action. And so I'm working with uh, the Consortium of Motion Leadership is working with another consortium called the Florida Institute of Oceanography um, that's based out of, the, uh, out of the Tampa-St. Pete area, and another consortium that's led by Florida Agricultural Mechanical University called uh, the Center for Coastal and Marine Ecosystems, which includes several other universities. These are historically black colleges, universities, minority-serving institutions, mm-hmm. Hispanic-serving institutions, and we're working with a private entity who is potentially willing to donate a vessel to our cause. And what we are planning on doing is in ocean sciences right now, how we provide students with opportunities for at sea work is we usually have cruises that scientists are executing and they're leading and they invite a student to participate in that student. then maybe we'll take water samples from the rosettes and help somebody. We're going to flip it on its head. Okay, it's not going to be we're going out to do science and we're hoping to get a little good diversity on the side. Our mission is diversifying the workforce, and so we're planning on trying to operate that vessel 300 days a year with a focus on giving underrepresented students opportunities to experience at sea work. And our target is two- and four-year colleges. We're not just talking about folks who might matriculate into graduate school and become professors. We want to see the whole pipeline. You need people working in the kitchen on a ship. You need people working in the engine room on a ship. You need people working shoreside, right, to support operations. And so we want to focus on that, and the mission is diversifying the workforce. We're going to do solid science in the process, um, but we're looking to develop that program right now. We have a little bit of seed funding from a private foundation, and over the next year, we're planning on bringing the community together to design the program that the community needs Mm. and implement that program and start executing. I, again, I said I don't want to write. I don't want, I don't want to write a white paper. Right. We know what the problem is.
1: Uh, I I love this, and I would just say. Yeah, it's a great idea. Uh, and I'm I'm putting a shout out to the other uh, companies, private sector entities out there in the blue economy space. I'm looking at offshore wind. This is this is something that could be done across the board. Truly, I mean there are a lot of new jobs that are going to be created. And there will be communities that are historically underrepresented that will be immediately adjacent to these brand new industries. There is no excuse to not fold. In fact, it would be a failure. I don't even, history shows that may, perhaps these industries would be torpedoed. You know, we, there, there's a history of failure here. So I think that it's core to the mission. I love that idea.
2: Well, yeah, and, and there's one ahead. more point that I think that's really important. When we think about things like climate justice and environmental justice, the groups of people who are going to be disproportionately affected are underrepresented groups. So, if you can create a program where underrepresented groups are entering into the workforce, entering into the science side, entering into the policy side, they are immediately part of the solution and connected to the communities who are going to be most affected.
0: I love it. Uh, and, and you would think, I know you're out looking for funds, uh, reaching out to the philanthropic community to support this initiative. Is there a chance that our good friends in the Congress and the U.S. government are going to see the wisdom of this initiative? Are there ways that you hope that, uh, that us taxpayers participate in the development of this initiative?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we, we are having those conversations right now with uh, government agencies, with uh, members of Congress and committees in Congress, uh, as well as um, some staff in the White House. Uh, all agree that this is absolutely the right idea. It absolutely has to be done and so we're trying to lay the groundwork on okay how are we going to do this what's it going to look like how much is it going to cost uh and i, I firmly believe that it's it's not just the taxpayers who are going to have to pay for this through government funds yes that's going to be a core component of it because y- you don't want to rely upon non-government funding for something you want to sustain over a long period of time that's it's yep. a real good role for government but you know there is going to be industry industry participation we we know this we've already talked to members from industry who are excited i said great let us know when you're up and running we expect that they're going to be sponsoring ports portions of this if tools or technologies are needed that they, maybe they'll donate some of those tools and technologies to the cause at the end of the day the industry members as well as government as well as academia as well as local ports and municipalities and things like that they all need this workforce and so we're expecting that they're all going to want to participate as well
0: i like the fact that the uh, the initiative really focuses on the undergraduate level in addition to graduate level research scientists uh, bringing people exposing them to the issues to the technology and to the science uh, creates lifelong learners lifelong interest in future professionals
1: uh, so it's an it's, outstanding. And just hard skills too i yeah. mean you know, going to sea, learning how to do all that stuff, I mean, that's that's would get you a job down the line if, if you were so inclined.
2: Well, and let's just remember that it's, it's not just undergraduate, it's two-year programs as well. Maybe yeah. it's technical and vocational schools because, you know, to work in the engine room of a ship is a highly technical job. It's hard, you have to know what you're doing. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to go to college for four years.
1: Right.
0: Ocean uh, research and technology development, uh, the key focus of the conference. Uh, one of the things I want to talk, and about, talk about is the is the information and what we hope to learn through the expansion of ocean exploration and science research development. Um, it looks like we believe, you believe, the folks at this conference believe, that better understanding of the ocean realm in all of its intricacies with greater science is it important to produce actionable information that we can better manage the f- challenges ahead. Is this, In other words, there is a, a pure research interest here. We do want to understand the ocean, but we also want to make better decisions. Can you talk about the necessity of actionable information through this research initiative that you guys are putting together. Sure,
2: absolutely. And and it's, let's be clear, if you look at a land-based analog, just let's look at the weather enterprise. Right? That is actionable information that has been built on over a hundred years of research and the development of forecast products and tools that then blossomed into a multi-billion dollar industry because People need information about whether it's gonna rain, whether it's gonna be cloudy, cold, snow, sleet, whatever. And not just later today, but you know, over the weekend or in 10 days from now or two right. weeks from now when I wanna go on vacation to some nice place, I don't wanna get rained out. It, the same exists in the ocean space, right? But that maybe the end use is a little bit different, right? And, and that's a complication because at the end of the day, when you're looking at the weather enterprise, the final product is the same product that's used prim- primarily by everybody, right? Maybe some bespoke products are spun off of that. But in the ocean industry, yeah. the port managers need one set of products. The ship operators need another set of products. The people lifting boxes off of ships to bring in goods into, into port need maybe a different set of products.
0: The wind developers. The wind developers need interest. a different
2: set of products. Those who are, who are working with um, protecting protected areas or sanctuaries, they need to understand what the biology is, what the systems are, what the ecosystems are, how they're operating, so they can effectively manage that resource. Those who are looking at fishery stocks, they need to understand fish stocks. And so really, when you look at the ocean enterprise and ocean exploration, it starts first with exploration. You got to know what's there at least at one time, right? You got to have at least one data point, and you got to build from that. But you always, you should always have that end use in mind. Um, science is great. I love science. Started out in, in, in the academic world, love doing research, but I have always been about the utility of science to help us make good decisions, to help us live better lives, right? And, and in this case, to help new industries blossom, right? We, don't, yeah. we, don't, we can't foretell what industries might pop up out of the blue economy. We know that there are some that exist now. We know that some are are growing, like offshore wind, but there are going to be some that pop up unexpectedly that are going to need the type of data and information that is being promulgated by the ocean science community. And in many cases, we're going to need to then understand from a research perspective, the biology, the ecosystems, how everything interconnects, because we want to make sure that as these industries progress, they're doing in a way that's sustainable one that ideally is mutually beneficial, right? That's not always going to necessarily be the case, but you have to try to do this at least in a sustainable way.
0: It's a big challenge ahead. And historically, I think one of the things that, uh, uh, many people are proud of is the fact that the information gen- generated by our government funded scientists whether through NOAA the National Ocean Service the National Weather Service uh, is publicly available and free it's kind of astonishing i can go on my computer i can go to the national data buoy website i can pull up a data buoy and i can look exactly and at you do. and you do actually it. does one of my this favorite laser. things during hurricane season is to watch hurricanes move across the gulf of mexico by tracking it on the national data Buoy Center. In other words, free and publicly available data is a hallmark of the investment that NOAA has made in science. As we move to this more intricate and integrated form of ocean science that is more privately funded, philanthropically funded, more commercially driven, talk to us about how we ensure that the information is available to the public. Will it, can it be publicly available? What's going to change as we move away from government funding to more private sector funding in ocean science?
2: Yeah, it's it's an excellent question, and it, and it is a, a very active topic. I, I will say readily that um, I, I'm really proud to have worked with a lot of philanthropic organizations over the years who, who actually embrace an open data model. They are privately funding and supporting ocean research and ocean activities, and some of their fundamental precepts are, if we're going to support you, your data has to be made publicly available so anybody else can use it for whatever lawful purpose they might have and and that's a fundamental part of government data at at the end of the day taxpayers have paid for this data they should be able to use it they should certainly be able to benefit from it but there is a a trend of course in the community as as there have been a lot of other uh sectors of of industry in particular of moving towards privatization of activity. And then as a result, you, you sell the data as a service. And, you know, any good business person is going to want to collect data and sell it more than one time, right? right. Um, and there's some challenges associated with that. But there are good examples of, of, of where government procures data now from a private source. They don't make that data publicly available, but they make the derived product publicly available because the derived product is what the public ultimately needs to be able to make a decision. So this is a deal they end up kind of cutting with the industry, they get a great decreased cost as a result. So industry Charges them less money for that data, so there's a benefit to the public because the public's getting what they need at a lower cost than it might cost otherwise. But this this is an area that is still emerging from a dialogue perspective, uh, and I think it's I think it's going to be challenging um, for all of us to grapple with because at the end of the day, I want I want businesses to thrive, and I and if they're going to go out there and collect data and they want to make yeah. a profit off that data, I want them to be able to do it. If the government's going to fund it, it needs to be public, right? Of Follow course. Point. But
1: and also that's one of the cool things about uh, this forum and other like it others like it where uh, the stakeholders convene and talk about the type of global community or at least in this case in the United States the type of uh, ocean exploration community that that uh, We'd like to see and um, the vibe that I'm picking up right now is that uh, we are looking for partnership and collaboration and uh, synergies and um, we're not quite ready to put the walls up. In fact, what I'm hearing is, well, if you're putting offshore wind turbines out there, maybe we can put some sensors on your, on your equipment out there to, to study, you know, salinity and, and climate change. And maybe we can put some aquaculture facilities out there as well because you're not going to be fishing in that area. So maybe it would be a good area to generate some food. So I think that the trend is actually to go the other way. Uh, speaking of trends alan I'm, I'm interested in you know this is the blueprint is for 2032 and i'm I'm not asking you to get ahead of the process but you have you have spent your career uh, in this space broadly you have an ability to see kind of the arc of history um could you look ahead a little bit and tell us you know let me just pause and say i know that uh, like offshore wind is happening fast like in california they have right now there's the offshore the pacific offshore wind summit and I believe the governor of California is trying to get turbines out there by the end of the decade. Uh, We know what's happening on the East Coast. Currently, I believe we're under construction on the East Coast, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there's one operating uh, wind farm and the leases have been let for many others. So uh, there's gonna be changes there. Could you help us see into the future a little bit? What, in 2032, 10 years down the road, what could characterize a little bit in your mind some of the features that might be different? So it's it's a
2: it's an excellent question. Although I will I will just pause for a second and say, anybody who tries to predict the future, particularly when it comes to technology, <laughs> must be quite careful, right? Let's remember, you nobody ever humble. thought that we were going to need an iPhone. Yeah. Yet somehow we all have cellular phones, right? right. So, um, I, I would say this is I think what. What we're going to see is um, probably definitely an increase in the, the roboticization of the ocean environment, right? So it, ocean science, ocean industries, are they're carbon intensive. They're people intensive right now and have been for hundreds of years. Well, they haven't been carbon intensive for hundreds mm-hmm. of years, but they've been people intensive for hundreds of years. So I think we're going to see more robots, right? We're going to see more autonomous vehicles, more <coughs> autonomous systems and things of that nature. Um, but that's going to bring its own host of interesting challenges. So the minute you have more robots, that doesn't mean you don't have operators. It right. means you have operators who are operating multiple robots or babysitting multiple robots at the same time, which actually might require a slightly different skill set, right, slightly different training. You're also going to need to use computational technologies to do things that are smart, to, to flag things when something doesn't look right so the human can actually look at what's happening maybe course correct. Um, the other thing we know is that Battery technology is getting better and better. Communications technology is getting better and better. Sensors are getting smaller and smaller. So, if I had to fast forward 10 years, I would not at all be surprised to see fleets of robots out there collecting data from the surface of the ocean to the bottom of the ocean across all time scales and not just primarily focused on physics and chemistry, which is a lot of what we have now. But biology, which is going to be the holy grail of truly understanding mm-hmm. oceans and ecosystems and, and, and getting to a point where I, I'm classically trained as an ocean modeler, so getting to a point where we can actually create models that are capable of predicting biological change in the ocean or at least using Ooh. them to diagnose yeah. when things might have gone differently than we expected
0: man that's cool yeah we we're on i'll tell you it it seems to me if you're looking for a trend big data is coming to the ocean exploration universe uh the uh, as you say uh, there's a discussion here at the conference about deploying millions of sensors in the ocean collecting data connecting them by satellite having the capacity to generate the level of information that you guys are describing is astonishing and my uh, what occurs to me is of course, what can you derive from that level of density in data has got to be one of the huge challenges ahead for all the scientists and all the smart people involved in this business is what the heck can you figure out if you have that much information? Are you confident we can tackle that? I mean, uh, let's say we can generate that density of data. Do you think we can do anything useful at this I, stage?
2: I think we can right and 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 I'll say when when you when you posit the question about what could we possibly get out of this all these data streams, I, I'm a baseball fan, okay, and it always comes back to baseball counts everything. Mm. they turn everything it's into true. A statistic, and they have now learned how to harness that data to make fundamental business decisions, right or their company.
0: Moneyball was, the, show, was it, it, the book. It
2: was indeed, right? Yeah. And and so there's been a proliferation of new and derived statistics that people are using to kind of really parse out what's happening. But here's the reality. Amazon and the Googles of the world, they're already doing this today. Yeah. They're, they're already putting things in front of us that they they believe that we should want to say buy or something like that. Yeah, The, the, the technological power is there. And it's been there for a long time. Yes, it has. We just haven't employed it in the ocean science world at scale. Very good. And that's starting now. The government agencies are starting to partner with the cloud service providers. They're working with the AI computing community. They're using, uh, you know, high performance computing and what's going to become quantum computing, that that are it's going to be capable of making decisions faster yeah. than we possibly can. Wow. And so I think there's actually going to be a bigger challenge, which is the the social part of us changing fast enough to be able to adapt and adopt right. the pace at which change is already happening, but the pace at which information will be increasingly coming to us fast and furious.
0: Woo, now we're getting to the that of the issue. Uh, because I think you're right that uh, a greater understanding of what's happening in the ocean, and uh, particularly when it comes to climate change. I mean, the instrumentation that we're going to deploy is going to allow us to better understand and document the actual physical changes that are going on in the ocean as a result of climate change. That, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And when we understand that and we can prove that and we can show that relationship, now we enter the realm of how to respond to what we understand. And now we enter the realm of politics. So this is what I think about is when I think about large data and the, and the work that you're doing uh, is ultimately the work is going to have a public policy implication. And that challenge is one no one can predict. But we know that resistance to truth is exists in the political world. We know that understanding does not necessarily lead to better decisions because understanding leads to the pressure to shift economic systems. And people have vested interests in these systems. So, this is sort of the, you know, uh, Dr. Leobardi is, is, is Leonardi's, we, we, we don't know what we're going to do with the data, but I think the pressure that it creates on the decision makers around the world is going to be real. I, I think that
2: that's indeed true, but I, you know, I'll take a look at this from a science community perspective. Our job is to do the science. Yeah. Our job is to analyze the information. Our job is to share the, the data. Um, and to the degree that we can then analyze that with a policy lens and help the people whose jobs are to make policy decisions that's great but i want st- to i want to stay squarely in the lens and in the, in the landscape of collecting data analyzing that data helping the policymakers understand yeah. it, it's as a scientist we shouldn't be necessarily creating the policy or something, because we're not best trained to do that. And I think, yeah. I think the, the IPCC assessments are a really good example, right? Yeah. Unequivocal scientific understanding that climate change is happening, right? The science community can tell you that they can share with you the information. They can show you the trend lines. They can give you projections about what might come in the future under various scenarios. And it's up to the policymakers to, to weigh the, the, the benefits and the challenges of which scenario makes the most sense. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's a real challenge.
1: And, and if I might just jump in here, uh, one of the things we've been talking about a lot at this ocean exploration forum is uh, communication and outreach and education. And here in the United States, we need an informed citizenry. Uh, You know, one of the fascinating things about this big data world, we live in it in our terrestrial lives already. McDonald's, the dollar menu has been the dollar menu for my entire life, (laughs) despite inflation, because they have figured out efficiencies using the computer and using, you know, their supply chain and figuring out how to keep that dollar menu profitable. Uh, So we are living in this in our terrestrial life. But the ocean space is a frontier and it's a publicly controlled frontier and so what's really exciting is not only the the integration of this new technology and and all of the the potential of economic boom here which and 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 the fact that we're trying to do this in a way that's sustainable and uh inclusive to our broader society but we are also trying to be uh educating the public becoming more informed citizens so that we can you know apply the pressure from the grassroots you know this isn't yeah. just about uh call, you know the, the senator kind of getting it it's it's about the, the the real kind of pressure coming from the bottom and i th- i think you know the truth is that the the ocean is a t- i don't want to say a tool but it's a feature on the planet that we need to uh, work with in order to solve the problems of climate change and you know the broader econ- uh, environmental issues that we face
0: 100% and i do think that you're right in dividing very clearly the bright line between the role of science in in producing the understanding of the world around us in the most precise and uh, reliable way that we can and that the implications of that information reside in a different community through our decision-making processes that are often public and, and mostly political. One of the questions I have, uh, Dr. Leonardi, is about the role that scientists play in the transition and the discussion from the world of science into the world of policy. And it does seem to me, as we move forward, that the that the skill set of scientists needs to be a little bit better in the public arena. Uh, Because when these issues arise in the public forum, uh, reliable, well-communicated, great outreach, the understanding of decision-making process in in our policy-making apparatus is key, and we need the scientists to be at the table. Um, Is that something that's part of the mission? Uh, This is a little bit beyond the pure science role but the role of science in public policy, is there a way to, that that can be stronger as we face these very heavy challenges ahead?
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways that it, it, it could be stronger, and s- some of which we're, we're doing today. One, first and foremost, like I said, one of, one of the, the missions of the Consortium for Leadership is we want to work with the agencies and we want to work with the Congress, because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are funding the work. They are also the ones that are deciding on policy and implementing and executing policy. So we need to understand what what their information needs are. Yeah, they need to understand what we can provide. They need to understand what resources we need to provide additional and better information for them. And so some of that is happening now. But the other piece is is from a public perspective, particularly when it comes to the ocean, right? A public appreciation for the ocean really needs to be strengthened. And, And in many cases, that's just sometimes scientists are not scary people right Mm -hmm. but scientists often don't talk to other people about the science they do in ways that are
0: that relatable so at the end of the day yes we understand that on this show
1: we do a fair amount of talking to we
0: really do try to get the scientists in front of the public and say listen we care about what you do and we are able to track it a little bit and help us understand what you do i think it's a very important yeah i agree with you a very important exercise
2: yeah, and, and I had a professor when I was undergraduate who who liked to say, if you can't explain it in plain English, you probably don't understand it. Hmm. And so that's been a mantra that is always wrong that. in my mind. And, and and I think that has to happen. You have to be able to explain things in a way to the public that is relatable, which which also sometimes gets at, how does this affect their day-to-day life? How is this gonna affect their, their pocketbook? How is this gonna affect their health, right? Like, harmful algal blooms. I, I, you don't want me to get into talking about which toxin and species is the thing that's doing the thing or how many decimal points I need to measure it at to figure out when it becomes harmful. Uh, What you need to know is that if that harmful algal bloom exists, there's a decent chance there's going to be something in the air that's going to make you sick. So pay attention to those signals. And it's the scientists can can signal and say there's a problem. Please stay away from the beach. You know, it might be unhealthy air. But we have to do that in a way that that's actionable. And if people don't understand it, they're not gonna take action.
1: Uh, Alan, you are the leader of a group that has leadership in its name. Uh, would you talk a little bit about uh, the role of leadership in the broader ocean uh, exploration space?
2: Yeah, excellent question. I, I, one of the things that I've always thought about when it comes to leadership is, some of the leaders I've most admired in, in my life are those that are active listeners and active learners. They're people who ask questions. They try to understand the situation. They try to understand what's happening. They try to understand everybody's perspective. And then, and of course, they're, they're willing to take that information and lean forward in making decisions. And so I think what we try to do from a leadership perspective is to understand what the needs of the different stakeholders and constituents are communities are to try to understand what the science community can produce that might help address some of those needs and then of course take action to try to get those things to happen right with convincing the congress that yeah, no funding is needed to do x y or z and the agency is like no you really need to move in this direction or the agencies talking to us and us telling the science community no you really need to move in this direction because this is what the agencies yes they love your science you're brilliant but it's not helping them answer
0: question b outstanding that's the connection uh, that you're looking for you've been the leader now of the consortium for ocean leadership now for 10 months i understand congratulations on the new position in the last year looking ahead what are your highest priorities in the next 12 months if you can what's on your mind what do you think needs to happen
2: yeah, there's a, there's a number of things that I would argue, I mean, our continuing priorities, of course. We, we continue to make sure that everybody understands that there is a need for the continuation of ocean observations. Uh, I believe firmly there needs to be a rapid expansion in the type of observations that are focused on biology in the ocean, because that's really a piece that it's hard to measure. And so new sensors and new technologies are gonna be needed, but we're gonna need to deploy those at a scale that is dramatically larger than what we, are, we have today in order to truly get to understanding and get to this predictive capability. Um, there's, a, there's a need for dedicated workforce in certain areas. Um, people really don't think about this much, but we need acousticians. We need people who understand ocean acoustics. I mean, and I'm not saying this from just a, a defense and a security perspective, although what's happening in the Ukraine should make us think a little bit about some of these things. We need acousticians who can use new technologies to understand the health and the fate of a given fish stock. Or whether or not there's a sound change in a given coral reef that signals that there might be a health issue. Yeah. Or whether we're looking at, at aquaculture, can you use acoustics to understand a change in the ambient noise signature that could signal that there's a negative thing happening with your stock that you might need to address? Th- this is a, a global need that we have right now. So it's one of the areas um, I'm focusing on. We're also working with a couple of groups um, in, in the space looking at marine carbon dioxide removal right. um, because climate change is, is happening. And even if we stopped emitting carbon today, we're gonna be behind and so we need to start mitigating. And so the ocean is going to need to uptake more carbon. And so how are we going to do that? The technologies to do these types of things are largely there. The science is not. The National Academies just did a study that was founded by a private foundation And and they found that basically the answer was the technology was there, but we needed about a billion dollars worth of scientific research to make sure that when we deploy those technologies at scale, they do what we think that they can do, and they don't do other things that we don't want them to do. So these are some of the things that are at the forefront uh, of my mind. And then of course, I I don't want to stop again, I talked about it a little bit earlier, but diversification of the workforce and inclusion is, is probably the thing that gets me most excited on a daily basis for the things that we're trying to work on.
0: Absolutely fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen it is Dr. Alan Leonardi he is the CEO and the president of the Consortium for Ocean Leadership. Joining us from the National Ocean Exploration Forum here in Austin, Texas. Dr. Leonardi, thank you very much. Closing thoughts, the last word. I just wanna say thank you for being here. It's been a great forum.
2: Uh, Yes, I've only been in the job for 10 months and 10 months ago I was on the government side and I was leading efforts for this forum from there. So it's it's great to be back with this community, a community that's growing, a community that has open arms and that wants to welcome more people into it. Uh, We have a great future uh, with the ocean science and the ocean community. Uh, and the time is now to actually take some really interesting steps uh, forward. So uh, hopefully we can we can all do
0: that together. Thank you very much for sharing your insights with our audience. Yes. Sing